Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. Good morning, everybody. So, as you can see, what I'm going to be talking about today is, what does God look like? This is really important. There's a, a theologian guy, uh, A.W. Tozer, and uh, he's, he's known for saying that uh, what's the picture that comes to your mind when you think of God, I'm paraphrase, paraphrasing, uh, is the most important thing about you. The picture that comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. So this is really, really important. What does God look like? Uh, so that's going to make a whole lot of things simpler, more complex, <laughs> hopefully clarify a whole lot of things. And I realized that I, I spend a lot of my time asking, yes, but what about? Yes, but what about? Whenever somebody's preaching, I sometimes wish I could, oh, 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 but what about? <laughs> so, so then I take those home and uh, I go and I look at them for myself and try and find answers to my yes, but what about? Uh, and even when I come up with an idea, I try and test my opinions, try and find exceptions, uh, Heather would be proud doing the lawyer thing, finding the loophole, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, that's that's just that's when my brain is on screensaver mode. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find loopholes and exceptions to the things so that I can then find out the reasons for the, the answers to those exceptions and, and all those things. So yeah, it can get a bit tiring, but I enjoy it. <laughs> so if you've spent any significant amount of time reading the Bible, and I, I know I've said this before, I really would recommend it uh, because it helps to give us a whole Bible theology. Uh, especially the Old Testament, you'll have a lot of yes, but what about questions. <laughs> the Old Testament can be very challenging. We, I mean, the New Testament is challenging in terms of its application for us, but the Old Testament is challenging just in the case on what on earth <laughs> was that about. Uh, and so I, I love those. I try and figure them out. Um, there's lots of moments in the Old Testament where really God doesn't look good. We always talk about the goodness of God, but there's there's a lot uh, in there. Uh, things that I wouldn't consider morally good or things that don't match up with even God's own definitions of what is good. Uh, and many people reject Christianity outright because they don't feel they can serve or worship or love God as he is represented in the Old Testament. And to be honest, I've had my moments as well where I've wondered uh, how on earth or in heaven this all fits together. And so I'm, I'm hoping that... Uh, Today and um, I will uh, also next week. Um, there's mostly overlap, but also some some bonus material next week. <laughs> um, we uh, yeah, that will hopefully clarify some of these. And uh, you might know A.A. Um, a. Milne, who uh, wrote the Winnie the Pooh books. He also wrote some other things, and this is one of the things that he wrote. Uh, the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, disbelief, call it what you will, than any other book ever written. And that's a strong statement, <laughs> but I can see where he's coming from. And, and what's, what makes it more complex is that we can't just dismiss it. Uh, it's just not like that anymore. We're, you know, we're in a new dispensation, but our new dispensation is on the foundation of the Old Testament. And we can't dismiss that foundation because what is a new covenant without an old covenant? There's, there's got to be something in there. Uh, but then again, those Old Testament portraits are so very, very different from the portrait of God that we find in Jesus. So how do we respond? 
And these differences can seem quite stark. Uh, there were times when, and I'll, I'll use here Yahweh as, as the God part of the Godhead, because that was his name, in the sense that you can say Sir, or you can say Hunt. Hunt is his name, Sir is his title, uh, God is his title, but Yahweh is his name. Um, and so I'll, I'm just using that here, where, uh, where there were times when Yahweh um, commands his followers to slaughter every man, woman, child, and animal as they were entering the regions of Canaan, the promised land. But then Jesus says, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Uh, Yahweh threatened curses on those who showed mercy to their enemies. But Jesus comes and says, forgive your enemies, pray for them, bless them, forgive them. 70 times 7. Yahweh even brought judgment on a group of people by causing them to cannibalize their children. If you need the scripture reference, it's in there. Uh, I'll give it to you at the end. Uh, but then, then Jesus praises the faith of children and says, anyone who harms children, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So you can see these are very different pictures of God that we are presented with in the, in the Old and New Testament. And I'm hoping that I can bring some clarity to these seeming contradictions. And so which one is it? Have no mercy or love your enemies? Let's have a look. And so often people will say, like I mentioned before, there's people who, who are totally put off of Christianity because of, of how God is, is portrayed in the Old Testament. Uh, they love Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. How can you not love Jesus? <laughs> uh, he, he, he is, you know, the, the, the prophet that comes, that even, even uh, in Islam, he's acknowledged as a prophet. And all over the world, people acknowledge Jesus. Uh, but God, they, they keep it at uh, arm's, arm's length. Um, and those of us who've known God's love, we have enough experience that we can say, I know there's an explanation for, that, for us, for this. I know there's an explanation for this. Uh, we, we have enough foundation to go on. Uh, we're not panicking. If you are panicking, do not panic. I wouldn't be here telling you this if we didn't have some kind of, if I didn't have something to give you at the end that could help make this, make this all work together. And so I'd love for this time that I'm speaking and uh, next one as well to give you confidence that he is good. He is good. More good than you could ever imagine. And you may have some ugly pictures of him, but he is good. And in case you're worried, I'm absolutely not going to tell you that he's good in some creepy, abusive partner way. You've all heard of the guy who, who gives his wife a black eye and tells her that it's for her own good. No. <laughs> it's not like that. We're not going down that road, uh, I promise. So many attempts have been made to reconcile very different, often contradictory uh, pictures of God. Um, and like I said, why, why do we even put energy into finding an explanation? Because the picture that we have of God is the most important thing about us. It affects absolutely every moment of how we live our lives, how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people, how we read the Bible, how we read the circumstances around us. Every single one of those things depends on the picture that we have of God. also important to know that if we don't have confidence in God's goodness, we're not going to have confidence in declaring his kingdom. If we don't have confidence that he is a good king, how can we confidently carry a good kingdom? 
And so as we grow in that confidence, I want us to, to gain confidence in the goodness of God, the, the wonderfulness of his kingdom, that actually it flows out of us. We don't have to think, okay, now I'm going to seek God's kingdom. I really am. I'm going to do my best to seek God's kingdom. It's just, oh, whoa, there's nothing else I can do. He is just so good. There is nothing better that I could give this world than the king and his kingdom. Amen. What you see is what you become. That picture of God is so important because what we see is what we become. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we have that veil, we cannot be transformed into his image. If we cannot see, we cannot be changed into the thing that we see. And so it's so important that we see who God is. If you see him as unpredictable, you never know who you're going to get. Are you going to get the Yahweh version, like we saw in the, those other verses, or are you going to get the Jesus version? There's, there's actually been studies to show that um, believers are more likely to act aggressively when they, when they believe that God sanctions violence. Believers are more likely to, to act aggressively when they believe that God sanctions virus. If you want the studies, I can give them to you. That's quite interesting. Uh, and, uh, but history, history provides substantial evidence of this alone. We don't need studies to tell us that. Um, the church has used this image of the warmongering God of the Old Testament to justify all sorts of atrocities, crusades, all sorts of crazy things. They felt justified in committing acts of horrific violence because they believed it was the moral thing to do. That God, who set the standard of morality, modeled violence as a solution to situations of conflict. And so that's seemingly then contradicted by Jesus' instruction to love and bless our enemies. That, that gets confusing. Which one? <laughs> like in any circumstance, that's why you saw, uh, you know, have no mercy or love your enemies. Which one is it? How do we respond in situations of conflict? Like I said, I know enough of God that there's an explanation. And here's a clue. Whenever we see something about God that doesn't match the character of Jesus, no matter how bad it looks, we can trust that there's an explanation. Whenever we see something of God that doesn't match the character of Jesus, we can know there's an explanation. And I can say that with confidence for a whole lot of reasons that I'm going to be sharing some today and some next week. Um, but platitudes like one day all will be made known, that we don't have to wrestle with this now. Stop. I struggle with that. <laughs> Each to their own. I have this view of God, you have that view. Each to their own. We can all have our, our different views of God, that's fine. God's ways are higher than our ways. That's the other one that's like, don't worry, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to wrestle with this. You don't have to get clarity. It's God's ways are higher than our ways. Ironically, though, uh, that scripture uh, was, was in the context of God being more merciful than his people thought he should be. <laughs> he was being more merciful than his people thought he should be. Um, they were being upset with him. Anyway, so different people have different responses to this Old Testament violence. Sometimes people ignore it, just dismiss it. 
uh, they just never read that section of the Bible. If it's not in the Live Your Best Life devotional, it's just not there. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> um, other people will take those as instructive. And we've seen that, as I mentioned, through history and in other places as well. They'll take those revelations as equal in authority to our revelation of God and Jesus and can use that to then justify atrocious acts of violence. They get to choose which aspect of God they want to demonstrate in any given situation and can justify it because that's, that's what God did in X, Y, Z. The difficulty with this view is that Jesus himself directly contradicts God's words in the Old Testament. So, so we've got the law uh, where it says, you know, the, that, you know, blood for blood, all of those things. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say, he sets himself up as a higher authority than the word that we have of the Old Testament. And I, I'm definitely going more into that because I could go on about that alone for half an hour. But I'm wanting to give you the whole picture first and then uh, bring a bit more uh, a bit more foundation to it as we go. Um, <laughs> others find ways to justify it. Of course they had to do that as they were going into Canaan. They had to kill every man, woman, child, and animal because they were coming to take over and otherwise they would have done this. And those people had sinned against them. They'd set up Asherah poles. They had committed sin and all of these things and so Jesus I mean God had to had to come and do that to you know prove something or whatever the case may be they'll find they'll take each instance uh, and justify the violence of it and spin it one way or the other to try and make it more palatable and try and reconcile it with with the picture of God that we see in Jesus and others will blame translation error uh, it's quite a convenient one uh, maybe there was some kind of mix-up the word slaughter doesn't really mean slaughter Annihilate doesn't quite mean annihilate. It's just, you know, speak not nicely to them. No, slaughter means slaughter and annihilate means annihilate. What are we going to do with it? <laughs> um, so maybe I'm just hard to please, but none of these approaches solves the glaring contradictions for me. Uh, and uh, this was a real struggle for me. I remember it was even, I was driving down Fields Hill one night and I was just like, this, and, and I think I've mentioned it before, but it was just this moment that a whole lot of things came together, and I was driving like, God, I can't do this. If that's what you like, I cannot do this. Not that, you know, all theology has to pass through the leaf filter, but, but you know, I, I needed to find clarity because I cannot give my life for this thing if, uh, if I'm not convinced. Uh, and so I had to make sure that I was convinced. But Paul said it was God. And Jesus believed it, the Old Testament. You can't just ignore those chunks of the Bible. Every word has to be taken seriously and acknowledged as inspired of the Holy Spirit, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. When Paul said that all scripture is God-breathed, he was referring largely to the Old Testament. He was saying that, that we now take that to include his own stuff. <laughs> But, but then he was, he was, I mean, a, a large portion of that was the Old Testament. We've got the added complication that Jesus believes it. <laughs> Nuts. <laughs> uh, he referred to it. He said, you've heard it said, but I say, uh, but he directly quotes 24 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. There's only four books in the Old Testament that are not quoted by, by any of the, the, the New Testament um, authors. So, so Jesus was convinced that, that this was, was uh, useful. And yes, there are some times where translators don't get things quite right, but in this case, I think there's just too many instances to blame on translation error. So what do we do? We've got 
Jesus, the peace-loving hippie on this side, and we've got God, the warmongering despot on this side. What, what do we do with those, with those pictures? I, I feel like sometimes the, pe- the picture that people get is the, the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. Chop their heads off. <laughs> that we've got, and then forgive your enemies on this side. Chop their heads off. Forgive your enemies. And now we've got Jesus and Yahweh, two-thirds of the Trinity. How can they be so at odds with each other? How can they be this? How do we reconcile them? Um, and they're not just different behaviors as expression, expressions of the same character. They seem like even different, different characters. And uh, I feel like I'm really digging a big hole for myself here. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, no, what are we going to do? Don't worry. <laughs> it's coming. How can I trust that God is good even when he looks bad? Which one am I going to get any moment? Uh, it's a bit like growing up with an unstable parent. You're never sure if you're going to get furious mom or patient mom or withdrawn mom or sweet mom. Uh, and that makes it harder to know how to behave because like all kids, you do something and then, and then you get like ragey mom and you think, well, that must have been me. Whereas yesterday, if you did the same thing, you would have gotten patient mom. Uh, and so how do we know which, which God we're going to get at any time? Um, but I think as we wrestle with this thing, there's really good precedent for wrestling in the Bible. <laughs> um, even the great patriarchs mentioned in Hebrew 11, Jacob wrestled with God through the night. Moses repeatedly objected to God's intended course of action and had the audacity to suggest an alternative. And even more crazy than that, God took him up on it. <laughs> um, and most of the time they were questioning the consistency of God's actions with the character that they believed him to have. They had a revelation of his character, and they were questioning the consistency of his actions with his character. And that's really what we're doing here. We're saying, we, we trust that you are good, but what, what do we do with these things? And I think there's two little points that can help us here. What is, what is faith? I think most of the time when you ask someone today, what is faith? They'll give you a paragraph, a paragraph, a paraphrase of, of Hebrews 11. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. That, I hope I got it right. Um, uh, but usually what they mean, no matter what scripture they quote, is that faith is the absence of doubt. That's usually what people mean. But faith in the Old Testament and faith today, while we see faith today as the absence, absence of doubt, as like a psychological certainty. In a biblical sense, in, uh, they saw faith more on the basis of a covenantal relationship. And I know it's a bit of a fine distinction. Might, some people might like semantics, splitting hairs. Uh, but I think it's important. Because of our covenant, I have certainty. No matter what it looks like, I have certainty in the covenant. Not faith in my faith. Because I think sometimes when we talk about faith, it's the absence of doubt. We start having faith in our faith rather than faith in the covenant. And it's important because on the basis of that covenant, we can wrestle with God. We can say, what's going on? And so when we lean into that covenant, um, if we see faith as the absence of doubt, then we do everything we can to avoid any possibility of doubt. And we stick to our live your best life devotional and leave all the hard verses behind. We skip over the scriptures that make things seem, seem crazy. Anything that creates a glimmer of doubt we avoid because it makes us feel as if we're unbelieving or faithless or that our faith is weak, but we can rest in confidence when there is this seeming disjunction because we know there's an explanation because of the covenant that he's made with us. Instead, uh, uh, 
This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that he's making with us. And so I would say, some people say, you know, that wrestling kind of demonstrates a weakness of faith. I would say it actually demonstrates our faith. If I didn't believe there was an explanation, if I didn't believe that God was actually good, I wouldn't have wrestled. I would have just said, sure, cheers, bye. I'll go find something else to do. But actually wrestling with God, wrestling with God is a demonstration of our faith. I know there's an explanation and I know you are going to give it to me. I will wrestle with you until dawn again and again and again. And I know you will show it to me and I will walk changed because I've seen that you wrestle back. I will walk changed because I've seen that you wrestle back. Once I've wrestled with God and I've got something, it's here. No one can take that. No circumstance can wrestle it away from me because I've wrestled with God for that conviction. And I've wrestled with God for this conviction that he is good. He is good. He is good. Above all else, he is good. So what now? You look so opposite in different places. You seem to declare opposite things. How do I know which version I'm going to get? Which picture of you is the one that I live by? What kind of king are you? If I'm going to give my life seeking your kingdom, I need to know. So, you can come back next week for answers to all of the questions and more. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I do have a few more minutes left. Um, so, uh, next week I'll, I'll give some more grounding as to why I'm confident in what I'm about to say. And throw in some bonus material, like I said on how those ugly pictures in the Old Testament, we don't have to gloss them over. We don't have to ignore them. We don't have to justify them. We don't have to find a spin, a way to spin them to, to make it palatable. That actually, they can serve to make God even more good. And like, not in that creepy way that I mentioned before, but genuinely show the goodness of God. And this affects how we see ourselves and others and the church and our circumstances and how we read the Bible. But for now, let's just say that all of the Bible is for us, but not all of the Bible is to us. But how do we know which parts we should live by? <laughs> which bits? So it's easy to say, not all of, the, all of the Bible is for us, but not all of us are to us. So which bits are to us? We need to, we need to figure this out. Uh, and what does it mean to rightly divide the word of truth. And I think this is what, what that is, is dividing which are the bits that are for us and which are bits that are of the bits that are to us. But let's just say for now that the revelation of God that surpasses and supersedes all others is Jesus. If we see a portrait of God in Scripture that doesn't match how he's revealed himself in Jesus, we can trust there's an explanation because Jesus is the standard by which we measure all revelation. Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 3. Going through a long line of prophets, God has been addressing our ancestors in different ways for centuries. Recent, recently, he spoke to us directly through his son. By his son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will belong to all, all belong to the son in the end. This son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He holds everything together by what he says. Powerful words. So what does God look like? God looks like Jesus. Jesus is the reality where the former things are the shadow. God comes to us in person through Jesus Christ. It's not God is a part of Jesus. I mean, 
Jesus is an aspect of God. He is God in person. God in person. The full, fullness of God in person is Jesus. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. And God reveals the goal and purpose of creation through Jesus Christ. And those are the four points that I'll, I'll go over this again. I'll, be, I'll, re, I'll expand, thank you, on those four points a bit more next week. So, but specifically, and so if you, if you were saying that Jesus is the revelation of God and that we need to read the Bible and our lives and ourselves through Jesus, you would say that's a Christocentric view. Christ at the center, Christocentric view. And so you also, call, also talk about a Christocentric hermeneutic reading the Bible with Jesus at the center. But I want to take that even further. Which moment of Jesus' life do we read it through? And you can say it's he was the woman at the well, tuning the Pharisees, washing feet, driving the, the uh, moneylenders out of the, the temple. But I would say that the moment that most defines and clarifies his character for us that most proves his incredible love for us and the moment that he could absolutely cry out, it is finished, is the cross. That is the pivotal defining moment of history. Of everything that he came to do, that is the defining moment of it. And so we can move even deeper than a cruciform, I mean, even deeper than a Christocentric into a cruciform hermeneutic, cross-shaped cross-shaped view of the world, a cross-shaped view of scripture, that the cross becomes the lens through which we look inward and outward, forwards and backwards. We see everything through the lens of the cross. It is a just defining pivotal moment of history. And so as we look through the rest of scripture, we can find Jesus in it. We can wrestle with God to show us his goodness his cross-shaped goodness in all of it. The cross is the lens through which God is seen. It is the means of grace by which God is known. The cross is the lens by which God is seen. It is the means of grace by which God is known. 